I don't know Cree. Like I don't know more than a few words. And so when I wanted to start with that Cree phrase, I, I actually consulted a professor at the university, the First Nations University of Canada. But I can't, I don't think I can remember. Do you, do you remember how, if you remind me, I could. I would it. completely butcher it. I was listening <laughs> to it today. Yeah, I, I, but... I'm, I'm going to find it here on my Spotify. Okay. That's Solomon Rat. I'm not a Cree speaker, but my dad was. I hate listening to myself. This is terrible. Hi, Jillian here, and welcome to Let the Women Do the Work, the podcast where we look at true crime from the perspectives of the women involved. There are lots of players in these stories we cover here, and many get forgotten in the coverage and chatter of it all. So this episode is about a journalist on a mission to change that, and how she set off in search of one person and ended up turning over stones along a bigger story, one that has affected whole generations. Her name is Connie Walker. She's an audio reporter, the current host of the Gimlet podcast, Stolen, and an all-around cool Canadian person with a focus. She spent basically her whole professional life following and sharing the stories of missing and murdered Indigenous women, an issue that's long been underreported in mainstream media across the world. For starters, her reporting over the years has helped take an actual account of the case numbers. An estimated 4,000 Indigenous women and girls were murdered or missing in Canada between 1980 and 2012, according to research from the Native Women's Association of Canada, though many suspect the real number is higher. A 2014 report from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police stated that even though Indigenous women make up only 4.3% of the Canadian population, they account for a whopping 16% of homicides against women and 11.3% of missing women. This epidemic of neglect for missing and murdered Indigenous women was Connie's beat while at the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and still is to this day. And she explores these stories, these living, breathing mysteries, with compassion. Her podcasts are like oral histories of what's happened, but also how she as a reporter found out. I cannot recommend her work enough. But before all of this, she was a teenager living on a Cree reserve in the rural Canadian province of Saskatchewan. And she decided to write an article for her high school newsletter about a story that troubled her. It was about a woman who'd been murdered named Pamela George. Oh, real quick. The following story contains details of sexual assault and violence, so take care if these are triggering topics for you. Pamela was an Indigenous woman, a First Nations woman like I was, and she was from a community actually not very far from where I grew up. She's from Sacame, and I remember going to powwows in that community when I was a kid. I wasn't a kid who, at that time anyway, was was that interested in news or current affairs or, or, or any of that. But I think that all Indigenous people in the province were paying attention when Pamela was killed because the, the two men who were on trial for her death were two white university students. And, and that case really erupted a lot of the racial tension that that has always existed there between First Nations and, and non-Indigenous people and Métis, First Nations and Métis and non-Indigenous people in Saskatchewan, and still exists. Her killers were Stephen Comerfield and Alex Chernowetsky. After a night of heavy drinking in 1995, they picked up Pamela in a car 
One of them was hiding in the trunk. They drove her to the outskirts of town, raped her, beat her to death, and then left her body in a roadside ditch. And, and I think the details around how they treated her were obviously so upsetting to learn. But I, I think the thing that really sticks with me was the way that Pamela was talked about in that situation, that so much focus was on the fact that she was an occasional sex worker. And, you know, the headlines called her, quote, prostitute. And I felt like we knew more about the two men who were charged in her death than we knew about Pamela, that they were white university students from middle-class families. One of them was described as a basketball star and the other was a hockey standout. And I felt like probably, like I, I don't think I had the words to articulate it then, but I think that the, the racism that we all lived with and grew up with was just kind of laid bare in Pamela's case. And, and for me, that was such a, an upsetting thing to witness. And I wrote something for the school paper about Pamela at the time. I don't, I don't even remember what I wrote exactly, but, and I wouldn't want to read it now, <laughs> to be completely honest, but, <laughs> but I, but I guess, yeah, that was the first time I really, um, became aware of, of like the bigger issues around violence against Indigenous women and girls. Oh, and Stephen Comerfield, the one who fatally struck Pamela, he got out on full parole back in 2000. He served a mere five years in prison for sexual assault and murder. Yeah, take a second and let that sink in. The other side of the issue is how little we come to know about the victims in these crimes, especially when they're Indigenous. Think of all of the, the true crime podcasts out there and like who are the people who are at the center of those stories? Think of the, the disappearances of women. The, the Gabby Petito case is a really big example of that that's happened recently. The amount of attention that her case got was just incredible on one hand, but so, so depressing on another hand. Uh, obviously, like violence against women and girls should not be ignored. It should definitely get that kind of coverage. But I remember just feeling so sad to know that that the women who often are, are the ones that are featured in these stories are not the ones who are actually disproportionately affected by violence. It's Indigenous women and other women of color who face the highest rates of violence. And that's so rarely reflected in the stories that we tell. And of course, like that's, that's harmful for the individuals who are either missing or who have been victims of violence. That's harmful for their families. But when you're thinking about how this is actually a, a social issue, this is like a, a public crisis that's, that's happening, it's unfolding before our eyes. And if we are, are not, you know, seeing these women as human beings, as mothers, as daughters, as sisters, as cousins, it's incredibly problematic and harmful. And, and that's part of why I think representation in, in media is so important. So Connie does her thing. She finds the cases that no one else is talking about and she covers them. Well, as it would turn out, one of her latest stories would send her back to her home province of Saskatchewan and take her across the better part of the United States and search for answers. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Look, Apostrophe is back. 
Yes, this is all about the skincare and you are positively glowing. Well, thank you so much. Here's the thing about Apostrophe. It's a prescription skincare company and it offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. We love science on this podcast. We love science and we love board-certified dermatologists, okay? They're helping with dry skin. They're brightening your skin. And here's what I love. You know I love a good unboxing, right? Yes, of course I do. Who doesn't love an unbox moment? Because here's something about skincare that you might not know. Yeah. The order and when you put the skincare on is actually really important. Like what yes. goes on first, what cream goes on first. So when yes. I was unboxing Apostrophe, I was a little nervous to one try something new, but then I was like, I hope it's clear. Let me tell you, <laughs> it is so clear and it's adorable. So oh it comes with like this really cute postcard welcoming me. It has stickers to personalize all the little creams and the sunscreen and everything. Oh. And then it even, it even has like on the bottle itself, like a little sun for AM, a little moon for PM. So I, it's foolproof. I know exactly what I'm putting on when. I love it so, so much. So get this, fam. We have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash work when you use our code work. This code is only available to our listeners. That's right. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash work and click begin visit and then use our code work at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash work and use that code work to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for $5 and we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast. Thanks Apostrophe. Thanks girl. Thanks, loving you. (laughs) So, as I said, Connie eventually grew up and became the journalist she felt the world needed. She covered missing and murdered indigenous women and girls at the CBC. She even made a podcast called Missing and Murdered. The first season of it covered the case of a woman named Alberta Williams, who was found dead along Canada's infamous Highway of Tears. Alberta was 24 years old. That 725-kilometer stretch of highway in British Columbia gets its name from stories like Alberta's. Over 80 Indigenous women and girls have gone missing or been found along it. So, like Connie was saying, this is a systemic issue. This stuff happens and goes underreported, which ultimately prevents vulnerable populations from being protected. You can't acknowledge a problem if there's no accessible proof that it's happening. Ah. So when she covered Alberta's story, a groundswell of people reached out in response. Like, hey, I've got another one for you. Most of them are families reaching out for answers as to what had happened to their loved ones. Like the siblings of a Cree girl named Cleo Semagonis Nicotine, who'd gone missing in the late 1970s. Cleo's sister, Christine, who now goes by her birth name, Crystal, reached out to Connie. Side note, since Crystal went by Christine at the time of Connie's reporting, we'll call her Christine throughout the episode. Uh, She reached out to me on Facebook, actually, and she attached a story that she had written about Cleo, and the story included a, a photograph. And she said that Cleo was stolen, murdered, and is now missing. And and I just remember thinking, like, what does that mean? And, and, and how could that be? And, and the photograph that she included, she said, was the only proof that she had that Cleo ever existed. And it was this picture of this little girl from, it seemed like the 1970s, an elementary school photo where she's wearing this striped shirt and she's looking into the camera. And, and I felt like I recognized her, not that I knew Cleo, 
but I felt like she looked like people that I knew from back home, people who I had grown up with, people that I, I recognized. And it just grabbed me and it made me want to know more. And I reached out to Christine and, and that was the beginning of, of that podcast. And so Finding Cleo, the second season of Missing and Murdered, was born. Connie would start from the bare bones story Cleo's siblings had of their sister and build out from there. And that story went like this. Young Cleo and her siblings Christine, Johnny, Mark, Annette, and April were all taken from their biological mother Lillian at the same time and adopted out to separate families throughout Canada and the U.S. They'd heard Cleo was adopted by a family in Arkansas, and they'd heard she eventually ran away in an attempt to find her way back to their reserve in Saskatchewan. It's called Little Pine. The story goes that on her way back, she was picked up, killed, and left by the side of the road. Stolen, murdered, and now missing because they didn't know where her body was. But they didn't know her adopted name. They didn't know exactly where she had been adopted into. They didn't know exactly when she had been adopted. You know, there was all of this basic information about their sister that they were not allowed to have access to because of the privacy restrictions around adoption. And so they reached out to us and asked if we could try to help find Cleo. So finding Cleo was Connie's motivation. But in order to do that, she had to go back, way back, to what happened to Cleo's family when they parted ways. Cleo's siblings only knew so much about their childhood and where they came from after being ripped away from it all. They were all uprooted from various young ages. And they weren't the only ones. Because this was during a time in the country's history that many non-Indigenous and white Canadians struggled to look back on and claim. It would come to be known as the 60s scoop. The 60s scoop was this kind of phenomenon that happened from the 1960s until around the 80s, where large numbers of Indigenous children were apprehended by child welfare authorities, scooped, as they say, and adopted into white families. And and in Saskatchewan, where Cleo and her siblings lived, there was actually a program called the AIM program, and it was called AIM because it was to adopt Indian and Métis children. And they had advertisements for kids in the newspaper. They had commercials of Indigenous kids who were available for adoption. And this was like a program that was created by the Department of Social Services in Saskatchewan. And Cleo and her family were, were caught up in it. Indigenous organizations in Manitoba are calling on the federal government to commission a national inquiry into the 60s scoop and the removal of First Nations children from their parents and home communities. It's important that uh, Canada understands uh, what happened to every single one of the children that were impacted by this. And until that's done, I think we haven't really done justice uh, for Canadians and for all the children that were taken away from their homes. Their new adoptive mother paraded them on local television. Marlene, Sean, Chris, and Eric, Barbara's children. We were just fortunate the first time we went through to be able to get uh, three of one family and uh, three Indians. Sexual abuse, the physical, the mental abuse, my mother fought for eight years. And the Attorney General wrote 20 letters to the Children's Aid to say, give those children back. When I was younger, I understood my heritage through my white adopted parents' eyes, and it wasn't a good image. And in the town I was living in, there's a very unique sound to the wind. And 
I now think that on that wind were my ancestors speaking to me and they were the ones that gave me the strength to survive abuse and ridicule. The 60s scoop is really, it really isn't over because our children, it's been said, are, are more represented in the child welfare system now than ever and it's really an attack on motherhood. That one kind of facet of, of this child welfare policy is connected back to a bigger story about the impacts of colonization in Canada and how every story that we're seeing about Indigenous people today in the news is connected back to that history and how there's so many people even who... You know, we heard from people who were social workers. We heard from people who work were, were like healthcare workers who work with Indigenous people every day who did not understand this history, who didn't understand the 60s scoop, who, who didn't understand uh, residential schools, which is connected to, to Cleo's story because her mother, Lillian, was a residential school survivor. But I think that one of the goals of our, our podcast and one of the things that we discovered when we were investigating what happened to Cleo and learning about what happened to all of the all of her siblings and all of this Megan's kids was that a lot of their story began with their mother, Lillian. You know, she was a, a Cree woman from Saskatchewan, a single mom who had all six of her children taken away by child welfare authorities. And they were all ended up adopted out and and scattered really across North America. Lillian is no longer alive, so Connie had to report around her to get a picture of Cleo's biological mother. And she actually connected with a woman named Nora, an Indigenous women's rights activist who knew Lillian as a young mother. And she told me a story about how once after Lillian's kids had been taken away, Lillian opened a newspaper and saw two of her girls being advertised for adoption. And and that she was so upset and she actually tried to contact social services to see if she could adopt her own children. And it made me obviously want to know more about Lillian and, and what what was happening in her life when, when this happened, but also, you know, what was what was behind this widespread adoption. And very quickly, you know, we we realized that Lillian's own experience as a child shaped not only her life, but ended, ended up shaping the lives of her children. Lillian was also taken away from her family, and she lived uh, in a residential school in Saskatchewan for most of her childhood. And we were able to get access to her residential school records and found that, you know, she never got to go home, that she lived in this residential school all year long, that that she was always listed as in residence. Ah, the residential school system. Let's get into this whitewashing fuckery, shall we? The residential schools were essentially boarding schools designed to separate Indigenous kids from their families. And, as it goes, their culture. These schools were funded by the Canadian government, but run mostly by Catholic and Anglican churches. So talk about sanitizing one culture just to push another one. Anyway, the residential school system was a presence in Canada for a long time. Like, starting in the 1800s and ending with the last one closing in 1997. That kind of long. And attendance was mandatory for much of the Indigenous population for decades some starting as early as ages four, five, or six. 
Imagine being sent away that young, checking in and never checking out for years. This was Cleo's mother Lillian's childhood reality. I've heard stories where parents were threatened with jail, that the RCMP officer showed up with the priest and, and the Indian agent to take children away, that parents tried to hide their children so that they wouldn't be taken away. And, and when kids, these children got to these schools, they were not allowed to speak their language. They often entered the school not speaking a word of English, not understanding anything but their own language. And as soon as they said anything, they, they would be beaten. They had their hair cut off. They were often shaved. They were called savages. They died of, of disease or malnutrition or other abuse. You know, children tried to run away from these schools and they were forced to, to return. Some children died on their way home, tr trying to get home, to get away from these schools. And those that survived, those that stayed in the schools, were often subject to horrific physical and sexual abuse. And, and I think that what's happening now is we're just beginning to understand the truth about what children experienced in these residential schools. And the truth isn't pretty, but here it is, listener. An estimated 150,000 First Nation, Inuit, and Métis kids attended these schools. Multiple generations of people like Lillian, like Cleo, like Connie, were deprived of their culture, ancestral languages, and homes so much that much of it just faded away. And I think that, you know, when we were looking into Cleo's story and we found out that her mother Lillian, uh, you know, w was a survivor of these of this school, you know, we understood some of the struggles that she faced as an adult when she was trying to parent her own kids. And what happened in those schools and the, the breakdown of family, the cultural genocide, uh, you know, you weren't allowed to practice your culture, speak your language, you were taught to be ashamed to be an Indigenous person. You know, we're still unpacking that and learning the truth about that and dealing with the intergenerational trauma and the intergenerational abuse that, that happened because of residential schools. Connie knew this dynamic even within her own family. Her dad was one of 15 kids who grew up speaking Cree in the home. All 15 of them went to residential schools, and now none of their children know Cree. So that language wasn't lost. It was stolen. But at least for Connie, her home wasn't. She knows where she comes from, which isn't far from where Cleo was from, actually. I grew up in Saskatchewan. I grew up mostly like on my mom's reserve, which is actually a reserve, small reserve um, in a community called File Hills, which is actually four reserves altogether. So I, I grew up, I think, like so many um, Indigenous families, like in a really big family. Connie was the oldest of her mom's five kids. Her dad had 12 kids. She grew up living with grandparents, surrounded by cousins and community. And also in Saskatchewan, like, there are so many Native people, there's so many Indigenous people, but it's also such a, a really small place. So you go anywhere and, you, and people say, who's your mom? Who's your dad? And then they're like, oh, okay, I know, I know who you are. And that's such a, a big question that we have. And that's immediately what happened in, in Little Pine. We got there and I felt familiar right away because I'm in Saskatchewan and the big 
huge open prairie sky is just one of my favorite landscapes and I just love going home. And you're driving on the highway, but then when you go onto reserve, you're almost always turning onto some gravel roads and, and that felt familiar as well. And so we got to Little Pine and we met like within a few minutes, like we had met the chief who actually was Cleo's first cousin. And within a few minutes, like he was driving us to a house on the reserve where they had set up a teepee and we were gonna participate in a pipe ceremony. They had an elder there who was conducting a pipe ceremony. And so much of that is just like, reminds me of how I grew up, you know, going to uh, cultural events in the community or feasts and, and hearing the language spoken and smelling the sweet grass and sitting on on the ground in a teepee. I was like, oh, this is amazing. It's so good to be home. And it really felt so familiar to me as well. And, and yeah, I still, I still just smile thinking about that experience. And I love getting to, to do that in my work. There's a lot of mistrust of media in Indigenous communities, rightly so. You know, the way that our communities have been portrayed in the past has, has been really damaging and harmful. And I think that, you know, there's this tradition of media who are from outside dropping into a community, staying there for a little while, and then leaving with stories. And I've encountered that that mistrust in so many places uh, because it's 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 just so widespread, and so I think that you know because I I have felt that and I know what that feels like, I try really hard you know to to take a, a different approach. But really, you know, my family has been impacted by colonization in the same way that every family I've met has been impacted, and I think that that context, that lived experience, that informs how I connect with people, it informs how I conduct interviews, it informs how I try to tell the stories and why it's so important for me to connect the dots and provide that context. And I think that's why, also why it really should be Indigenous people who are supported and resourced and given space to take on these stories. Which brings us back to the Cree phrase you heard Connie say at the top. Hold on. <laughs> That's Solomon Rat. I'm not a Cree speaker, but my dad was. I hate listening to myself. This is terrible. (laughs) It translates to something wanting it. It evokes the search for something, perhaps unknown. And it's the first thing you hear in finding Cleo. But I wanted to start with this Cree phase because I felt like it's more than a language. It's an entire culture. It's a way of life that so many people are struggling to reconnect with because so much of that language and culture was lost through the residential school system, was lost through the 60s scoop, that so many people have been violently like disconnected from our language and culture. Um, and and I'm, I include myself in that. Finding Cleo meant returning to the source of all this yearning for a return home. After all, the story went that Cleo died in an attempt to get back to Little Pine. But as she'd soon find out, they had the location of Cleo's adopted family all wrong. 
Hey girl, BetterHelp is back. Yes, BetterHelp. Hey girl. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Remember in last week's episode where Lori Davis was talking about how you can't always see trauma, but it is still very damaging to the person experiencing it? Yeah, you mean like the third time I cried in that episode? Yes, I remember. Right, because she said it like the first five minutes. Yes, yeah. exactly. So <laughs> you don't always know what someone else is going through. And you also don't always know how stress is manifesting with you. Sometimes it's a headache and you realize, wait, I really need to talk this out. You have no idea. And sometimes you don't realize that physical symptoms you might be experiencing like headaches or teeth grinding or anything like that is actually stress manifesting and you got to talk it out. That's the whole thing. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways and we're here to remind you to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. Therapy works, everybody. And it used to be very intimidating and very hard to get and very expensive and very time consuming. So BetterHelp is customized online therapy. It offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if that's something you're not comfortable with. Also, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. Give it a try and see if online therapy can help lower your stress. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, yeah, I think it's going to. So yeah. let the women <laughs> let the women listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash do the work. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash do the work. And you know what? Go do the work, fam. Go do the work. You might feel a little tired, but you'll feel better. You'll tired feel is not bad. No. <laughs> Hey, girl, guess who's back? Liquid IV. Hey, best girlfriend, Liquid IV. Loving you, girl. You know what? Getting things done is exhausting and it's dehydrating. Yes. You know what all of these women are or should be drinking? Liquid IV. Hydration multipliers. <laughs> Doing the work while drinking the liquid IV. Let me just tell you, our director of projects, Natalie, and I had our first fight the other day in the office over the last stick of liquid IV. Oh, those flavors. Oh. Well, we're talking cotton candy. We're talking the lemon. All I know is we were down to one. We fought over it. I let her have it because she's the woman doing the work, but it's a hydration <laughs> multiplier. It's full of the vitamins. It makes me feel better every day, and it makes me drink more water. That's the biggest thing. That's the best part. I'm a tangerine gal. That's my favorite yes. flavor. But speaking of those vitamins you were mentioning, it has five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12, and vitamin C, plus three times the electrolytes of those traditional sports drinks that are packed with sugar. It's also only made with premium ingredients. It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. Also just delicious. It's just plain delicious, like you. Oh, thank you so much for my tangerine <laughs> flavor, just like my favorite liquid IV. Exactly. And liquid IV is on a mission to change the world. They've donated over 20 million servings globally. So fam, grab your Liquid IV in bulk nationwide at Costco, or you can get 25% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WORK at checkout. I love our code. Work, work. That's 25% <laughs> off anything you order when you use promo code WORK at liquidiv.com. Experience better hydration today at liquidiv.com. Promo code WORK. And I gotta tell you, don't fight Natalie for that last stick. She's always gonna win. You know what? There's plenty to go around. The oh, world yeah. is wide enough for all the liquid IVs. Everyone should just have some. And you should stock up, actually, if we're fighting over the last one. True. What are you doing? I know. We're back. And before we continue, I want to step back and reiterate how bare bones the information Connie had at the outset of this project was. She ostensibly had the story Cleo's siblings had been told, and she had a photograph. They had Cleo's birth name, but not her adopted one. Connie's team didn't even have her birthday until they pieced together her age based on some other siblings' adoption records. And they certainly didn't have her death date. Until the needle in the haystack that is the internet poked Connie's producer Marnie right in the side. So she was searching Cleo in that birth year on findagrave.com and something came up. 
in New Jersey. And I remember, you know, she she told me about it and and I was like, this has to be it. And so Marnie and I traveled down to New Jersey and we we visited the graveyard and we found the headstone. And we were trying to find public documents first, I think, because we didn't know what was true at that point. Like, you know, uh, and, and if Cleo had been killed, like, you know, we were hesitant about approaching the adopted family because we just really didn't know. So we were trying to find out as much information as we could from other sources first when we went to the funeral home that was associated with that cemetery. And we had the photo that Christine had shared with us and, and Marnie had printed it off on eight by 10 paper. And we were we had asked the receptionist at the funeral home if she could give us any information about this. And she just kind of went off and didn't seem to register with her at all. But then she came back and I showed her the photo and she took a second look and she was like, oh my God. And she recognized Cleo, that they were friends, that she had gone to school with Cleo and that it was her, the Cleo we found in New Jersey was Cleo's Meganus. And we just happened to come across her friend in the funeral home uh, where we had gone to for information. And she remembered the, the day that Cleo died because she was having a Christmas party and Cleo was invited and she didn't show up. And she remembers her mom calling Cleo's adopted mom and them finding out. And it was such a dramatic turn of events. Like you really couldn't have imagined anything like that was gonna happen. You couldn't script it. No. It would be unbelievable. People would be like, that would never happen. Yeah. If you were in a writer's room, they'd be like, Connie, it's a little too... No, that would never, ever happen. It's wild. As it's unfolding, you're like, wait, what? And I'm listening to it. And then you... Because she says she doesn't want to be recorded. Yeah. We, we were recording. And then she said, are you recording? And I said, yes. And then she said, turn it off or something like that. And so I did. And then though, what's amazing, what I would love to unpack with you is that you kind of make this decision... Yeah. In a somewhat panicky moment to just hit record again, hoping that she'll understand. Yeah, because she started talking about Cleo and and I thought of Christine and Johnny and I thought of like that they that they might want to hear this or something. And I, I hit record again. It was such a I, I mean, I really felt a lot of empathy for her because like she was just there at work and she was like, all of a sudden these people come in and they're like, tell us about this really terrible day and like, you know, just totally out of the blue. And then, and so I totally understood her not wanting to record. And then, and we kept in touch with her and then she ended up, um, you know, we went back to New Jersey a couple of months later and we brought um, Christine with us and she got to meet Jill. That was her name. And I know that that meant so much to, to Christine to meet somebody who knew her sister and then, you know, we kept in touch and I, I told her, I admitted what I had done, that I had kept recording and I asked if it would be okay to use it. And she gave us permission. And so we included it in the podcast, but no, I feel like that's, that's the thing I get asked about the most. I think, I mean, on one hand, it's like, like that really appeals to me as a, a journalist, the ability that you have in podcasting to peel back the curtain, to kind of be transparent about the process. I and and to feel like as a listener as well i love it when you get to feel like you're there with somebody as they're doing something and i think actually like it's 
it's important to do that in journalism, to to think and talk about the process and to talk about all of the shades of gray that you encounter because it's not a science. There is not like so much of what we do is so subjective. And we really, I think, need to unpack that and understand that. And and I guess those those decisions are part of it. But yeah, that was a really there's so many intense there's so many intense moments. And among the most intense was when they decided to knock on the door of Cleo's adoptive mother. And stepping aside for a second, you should know this. Connie's no robot. She doesn't like to prod into people's lives and cause discomfort. She gets nervous, just like many of us would. Behind that door, what would this woman say to someone seeking her dead daughter's story? That's partly why we're such a good team, because Marnie is like, you know, I need to talk things out a lot before these things happen. And like, you know, and I'm talking and we're in the car and we're driving there. We're driving. We're on our way. Marnie's driving. Um, and she's like, mm-hmm. And we're talking about it. And she's so patient. And and then we get there and she's basically like, okay, now you like have to go. And I always do this motion where she's like basically kicking me out of the car. Like, go and do it. <laughs> Not really. But and anyway, so we went to knock on Cleo's adopted mom's door. And she shared with us. What happened to Cleo? She said she was a good kid who... She was a good kid who had a bad lot in life or something like that, or had bad luck or something like that. And I just remember, like, walking away with those words in my mind um, because she shared that Cleo had taken her own life. She was so young. And I just felt, like, I just felt so sad... And, and I think that actually, I didn't really unpack it for, for a long time after that, because when you're in the field and you're doing that reporting, like there's just this kind of forward motion. You're like, you're there in the field. And I feel like the investigative elements and the search for new information, the search for all of this really propels you forward in in a way that I really rely on. I've, I've come to realize like, it's not just the listeners or wanting to have that for the listeners. But I think as a person, as a journalist, that's what really pushes me forward. But then later on, when you're writing the episodes and you're re-listening to the tape and you are sitting in all of those moments, that's when I feel like I I was processing that news that, that Cleo had taken her own life. And that phrase that Mrs. that her adopted mom said. And I remember thinking that's not, it's not only luck that this is like, this is systemic. This, this happened to so many indigenous kids who were taken from their families and forcibly removed from their community and culture. It happened in residential schools for generations. It happened in the 60s scoop. It's happening now. There are still Indigenous children are grossly overrepresented in the child welfare system. And here are some numbers from Connie's podcast to back that up. Indigenous children are still, to this day, more than twice as likely as other Canadian children to live in poverty, four times more likely to become involved in the child welfare system, and seven times more likely to take their own lives. It goes without saying that the 60s scoop caused a lot of psychological damage that still lives on. 
Many survivors say the forced removal from their families and native land led to cultural shock, emotional emptiness, violence, physical and sexual abuse, and substance abuse. Talk about true crime, right? By definition, this was cultural genocide. And so far, all that's been done to right it is minimal compensation. And in this larger story sits Cleo's and that of her siblings finding answers about her life and death. Connie was cognizant of this. In a long history of racism, this was their story. They should control the narrative. So for the last part of the investigation, Connie brought along Cleo's sister, Christine. And what they'd find together on their final visit to New Jersey would take their understanding of Cleo away from death and into the life she lived. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Daily Harvest is here. You want some? You hungry? I love Daily Harvest. (laughs) Here's the thing. We're all so busy. No one's got any time. At the end of the day, the last thing anybody wants to do is cook. You all know that takeout temptation. We all live with it. But when you've got your fridge and freezer stocked with a Daily Harvest, you never have to do it. You can have the healthy oat bowls or the flatbreads or the soups. Yeah, they have options for any time of day. So you don't have to waste money and waste plastic and all that stuff with takeout. You can have breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, dessert. Everything's in your freezer ready to go. And it's flash frozen. So there's yes. no freezer burn. It's not like, no. oh, I'm not going to get this old frozen freezer burn tasting thing. No, no, no. It's super, super fresh. Yeah. And the whole thing is it takes minutes to make, right? The smoothies, you just add the oat milk. Everything else you throw right in the microwave. It's fresh. It's delicious. And get this, fam. New on the scene is their delicious harvest bakes. They're ready to bake veggie packed dishes sizzling with gourmet level flavors that are big enough to share, but you won't want to. Can I just tell you, they make your house smell amazing. I They make your house like there's been a home-cooked meal that you've been cooking for three hours. Cannot recommend it enough. So avoid the takeout temptation and get Daily Harvest. Go to dailyharvest.com slash work to get up to $40 off your first box. That's dailyharvest.com slash work for up to $40 off your first box. Dailyharvest.com slash work. Work, work. Yeah, but isn't that funny because you don't have to do the work for cooking because Daily Harvest does it for you? How interesting. I love it. As you've gathered, Connie had tons of opportunities in the search to connect back to her roots and reckon with this troubled history. And Cleo's siblings inspired her to do this through their desire to connect back as well. Along the way, Connie was particularly taken by Christine's longing for not only Cleo, but the culture that was taken away from her. So she was keen on letting Christine take the driver's seat in this last stretch of the project. When we went back to New Jersey, we made sure that Christine could come with us and that she was the one who was like knocking on the door of the police officer who responded to um, the 911 call. And she was the one who, you know, went to get the death certificate and and she was really, you know, leading that. And I and I think that 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 was really, I think, important for us, but also hopefully important for her. And then at the police station in Marlton, New Jersey, Connie, Christine, and her team finally found their biggest piece of Cleo's puzzle yet. They obtained her police file, and in it were letters Cleo had written to her best friend Lori at the time. Okay, fine, they weren't the most exciting letters, but they gave a glimpse into Cleo. How she thought, how she communicated, who and what she cared about. She was a smart, bold, adventurous kid in the 1970s who liked music, specifically The Who and boys. She wrote in cursive and fantasized about running away to live by the ocean. These letters culminated in an episode that embraced Cleo's written voice, in life and in the weeks leading up to her death. 
My brother's birthday's today. He's 15 or 16, I'm not quite sure. He's an asshole. On Saturday, let's go to the mall. Do you want to go see up and smoke? This morning was so easy. We didn't do any work. All the teachers know I am pretty smart. So if I don't get good grades, they'll be on my ass. So I would do your homework for you so you get good grades. So give me your work, okay? What do you want for Christmas? Something under $10, okay? Because I ain't rich. You could get me posters of Andy Gibb or a 45 will do, okay? So much of of her life in New Jersey was a mystery throughout the whole podcast. You know, even after we found out where she lived and we found out where she had been adopted, there was so many questions just about what that was like. And, and so I think this was the chance to really kind of get a sense of what she experienced. And of course, it's not a complete picture. It's it's not the the entire truth because, you know, we, we just we just don't know. But but this is what we could piece together with the information that, that we had and and yeah, I'm just so grateful that we I felt like we're able to kind of get a glimpse into her personality and into her her life. And, and give give people that. I know you were saying that you didn't want to make this about you at all, but I think you did such a fantastic job of being there and being present and sharing experiences while also letting all of these people tell their story and tell Cleo's story. But I am wondering, what did this podcast accomplish for you personally and as a journalist? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, like, honestly, this was, like, incredibly um, difficult story to report for so many reasons. I think that, you know, because so much of this was about Cleo's siblings and the childhood trauma that they had all experienced and that were still impacting them, we just wanted to be, you know, so understanding and sensitive to that. And I think that, you know, the one of my biggest takeaways from this experience of getting to go on this journey with them was a better understanding of trauma. And I think that what Christine and Johnny and April and Mark taught me about trauma was about the power of storytelling and in helping to heal from some of that trauma. And I remember being so worried about bringing up painful experiences for them but I think that with Johnny, I remember like, I remember it was so instructive, like going to meet him and he had decided where we were going to meet. We were going to meet at his friend's house. It was a place he felt really comfortable. He had supports there. He had arranged for his friends to, to come after the interview. And then, you know, we kept in touch with him after the interview to check in. And obviously we talked about a lot of, a lot of the trauma that he went through as a kid in that really long, intensive interview. And I think, you know, that, that this was actually not a harmful thing for him, but that I think in sharing, there was healing that was happening. And it really helped me, I think, understand that the trauma is something that obviously can impact your whole life and that you can live with and that um, it's also something that you can heal from. And and I think that Johnny and Christine or Crystal, as she now goes by and, and April and Mark are, are just really inspirational examples of that. Yeah. That is incredibly moving and powerful. 
Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm in awe of them, honestly. What's that? How can you help, listener? I'm so glad you asked. Connie says there are simple things non-Indigenous people can do every day to be better allies. Be open to unpacking and better understanding the history of colonization on this continent, for one, and brainstorm how to dismantle and reckon with that in your community and life. There are endless resources, including many podcasts, on stories like this one. You can start by digging into the rest of Connie's work. And speaking of, she also recommends exploring the work of Indigenous journalists. And when you're done with that, share it, champion it. Better representation in the media world is of utmost importance for getting stories like the ones Connie covers out in the world and told correctly. We have the intrepid storytellers of these communities to thank for closing the loop on so many unresolved, complicated, and affecting matters. It's long been time we support their work. Let the Women Do the Work is a production from the Obsessed Network, and it's produced by Becca Gregorio, Natalie Grillo, Patrick Hines, and me, Jillian Pensavalli. Research for this episode is by Misha Hodge, and our editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Find me on Twitter at Jillian with a G. And remember, just let the women do the work. I can't listen to myself either, but I would listen to you all day, every day. And thank you for searching for that or trying. There's no <laughs> pressure to, you know. Um, what was the other sentence? You mentioned another sentence, oh, just the translation of it. And, and I'm sure what? I'm butchering it. It was Niki Payak Nipan Tipiskok. I slept alone last night. <laughs> That's one sentence I remember from university. 